It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. As always, great pleasure to be with you. Lots to talk about today. We're going to talk about Joe Manchin and no new taxes. Uh, A dreadful deal with Iran that makes no sense at all, the Biden administration. I mean, I don't. I can't even begin to fathom why they want to deal with Iran. And, of course, a little Saudi fist-bumping along the way. I mean, I think that's unseemly. I don't get as excited about it as some people do. It was unseemly. It was uh, another stupid uh, move by Team Biden. They they couldn't quite figure out what to do with, um, with the Saudi Crown Prince MBS. But, you know, um, really, to me... The biggest event this week was here at home, and Joe Manchin basically pulled out of a deal with Chuck Schumer in this uh, so-called Build Back Smaller tax and spend reconciliation package that would have spent a trillion, more or less, and raised taxes by at least a trillion. The spending would have steepened inflation, Already high, obviously, with the CPI at 9.3%. And um, the tax hikes would have deepened recession. We're already on the front end of a recession. The GDP tracker from the Atlanta Federal Reserve Bank, the widely followed GDP tracker, so that's down 1.5% for the second quarter. That's unofficial. We don't have all the June numbers in, although we have a goodly amount. The first quarter officially minus 1.6%. So, you know, we could be looking at two consecutive quarters of falling GDP and the first half of the year basically will be down about 1.5% with about, uh, I don't know, an 8.5% inflation rate. Is it nothing worse? I mean, really, 18 months ago, 18 months ago, Donald Trump handed the economy over with a 1.5% inflation and a 6.5% growth rate. And the Biden's big government socialism, and we are going to talk to the author of that phrase, Newt Gingrich, and his new book, uh, Newt will be with us at the half hour. But really, in just 18 months, we took a superb economy, we, the Biden administration, took a superb economy and ran it into the ground. Okay, ran it into the ground. That is not an easy thing to do in 18 months, but they did it. With wild spending packages and the virtual shutdown of the American oil and gas business with respect to new investments, new production, new pipelines, new refineries, new leases, new permits, everything. Incredible. And huge government spending and borrowing and money printing. I mean, I'm, I'm like the warm-up act for, for my friend Newt Gingrich here. Why big government socialism fails. Anyway, Joe Manchin helped us, Democrat from West Virginia, Joe Manchin helped us save America and kill the bill last winter. A lot, a lot of us were worried about him. He was, you know, smooching cheek-to-cheek with Chuck Schumer for a while, talking about uh, Schumer's agenda of taxing companies, taxing small and big companies. 
as well as uh, large-scale spending. But I think uh, Joe Manchin has seen the light and basically uh, Friday pulled out of the deal. Now, there may be, you know, it, some people say it's a tiny loophole, contingent on inflation reports uh, next month that would cover the month of July, but that's just, that's just, uh, I, I know Senator Manchin, I'm a big fan of his, I know what he's doing, he's just fencing around, it's not going to happen, and, and it's very important because um, these tax hikes that were in the Schumer plan, the Schumer plan was, of course, totally endorsed by the Biden White House. But they would have raised taxes on the small businesses, uh, subchapter S, these so-called pass-throughs, LLCs. You know, but I don't know, something like 90% of the output in this country comes from small businesses, about half the employments, something like that. They're very, very big numbers. And um, they were talking about uh, imposing the Obamacare investment tax of 3.8%, which was expressly designed on investment for individuals and expressly way back in 2010 and later reconciliation attempts avoided uh, ordinary income from small business profits. Anyway, Schumer wanted to impose that 3.8% tax and cut back on the loan loss provisions of small businesses, which would be decimating, particularly as we sink into recession, particularly as small business uh, output has actually been flat for the last three or four months, and employment is falling. The Household Employment Survey, which captures small businesses, is actually down two of the last three months by an average of about 165,000. So, you know, you see these recession signs everywhere. And lo and behold, Chuck Schumer, who really is uh, an economic illiterate, he's a socialist. Maybe he wasn't always so, but he's moved to the left. I mean, how could you raise taxes when you're staring a slump right in the face? And why would you want to spend? I mean, the spending on uh, Green New Deal endless trillions of dollars spent and it still hasn't produced. We are still a carbon producing country and we still have the cleanest air and the cleanest water of any of the big countries because we have been using natural gas. And I might add, we've been using carbon capture oil and carbon capture coal and the technology continues to improve. We can also use wind turbines. We can also use solar. We should also use nuclear power. These new modules but the greenies don't like nuclear power. It's an ideological issue, not a science issue, not an analytic empirical issue. Anyway, Manchin's walked away from the deal. That deal would have included a 15% minimum tax on the book profits of corporations, not the IRS profits, but the book profits, which means they would not have had the benefit, for example, of immediate expensing of equipment and machinery. And that bill would have also included a 15% minimum tax on multinational corporations abroad, which is a deal that even Europe hasn't signed on to. But that's all gone. It's all gone. And so we owe Mr. Manchin. I think that Senator Kirsten Sinema would have also voted against it had it come to that. 
Uh, she didn't say much during this period, but um, if her past record uh, holds. And there'll be no surtaxes on uh, wealthy individuals either. So, I've kind of dodged a bullet. Dodged a bullet. And the clean energy spending is not going to get done because it can't be financed because there aren't going to be any tax hikes. So, for the moment, things um, are not going to get any worse. We may have stopped the bad stuff. I mean, the whole point of the cavalry coming, Republicans take the House for sure, maybe the Senate, but the House is so darn important, is to stop the bad stuff like these crazy tax and spend and regulate packages, you know? And if we take the House, we won't have to rely on Mr. Manchin or anybody else on the Democratic side. But, you know, I'm happy to welcome Joe Manchin into some sort of uh, Save America coalition, if that's what he wants. He's a good man in the main. They are, he's still in favor of Medicare uh, drug price controls, which I think is a terrible idea. And by the way, medical spending, I mean, (laughs) prescription drug spending is about flat. And uh, non-prescription drug spending is actually falling. So, you know, this is just more left-wing ideology. That's all it is. So I think we dodged a bullet. I think that uh, basically Manchin refused to make an offer. My offer is nothing, kind of like something out of The Godfather. And um, it's okay. No worse. But we're still in a pickle. We're still stuck with very high inflation. It's going to take several years to get that back to the Fed's 2% target. Several years. No easy way here. We're going to grind it down. Rate's going to go up. The Fed's target rate's going to go up probably 100. I'd like to see them do 100 basis points. I think it's the meeting is next week or the week after. I'm sure they'll do at least 75. They're going to have to do several of them because right now interest rates are way below the inflation rate. And that's true across the board for the whole yield curve. Interest rates, medium, long-term rates, are still way below the inflation rate. That means you are losing money if you own bonds. And uh, that's not a good position to be in. Retirement accounts, pension funds, it's not a good position to be in, and it's going to have to be corrected. So I don't think uh, we've seen the worst of it yet. But again, we are dodging a bullet on tax hikes and even more inflationary spending. And um, I think we're saving America. I think we've killed the bill. Uh, I think we will thank Senator Manchin for hanging in there and walking away from the deal. And now we just have to figure out how to carry the day in November. And um, I'm sure former Speaker Newt Gingrich, who was a dear friend, he and his wife, Ambassador Callista Gingrich, Vatican ambassador, I mean, I think Newt will tell us that he wants to create a coalition, you know, of Republicans and independents and even, you know, maybe a third of the Democratic Party, maybe common sense Democrats, to stop this nonsense, this big government socialism, this central planning This tax the rich, redistribution, is killing the country. 
And that's why Biden's polls, where is he now? In the mid-30s, low-30s? People don't even want him to run in his own party. It's not good. We'll explore all of it. We'll explore all of it on the show. I'm going to take a quick break. I want to come back and share my concerns with you about this Iranian nuclear deal, which is just a horrifically bad idea by the Bidens. Another major, major bungle. I am Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show, folks. We will be right back after this break. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. By the way, join us during the week on Fox Business Television. The name of the show is Kudlow. 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. And if you can't dial it up at 4, you can call your favorite 9-year-old who will teach you how to DVR. You can get it every day. Right here, you can get us uh, live stream on the Internet, wabcradio.com or larrykudlowshow.com. You can get us all across the country, all around the world, throughout the solar system. We have a terrific following throughout the solar system. Although I'm a little worried now that China wants to take over the moon and Mars, I could cut into my viewership, listenership. Not good. I'll tell you what's not good. Joe Biden in the Middle East, I mean, the guy's a menace. I'm sorry. His foreign policy is a complete mess. Complete mess. Who was it? Senator Marsha Blackburn on the TV show said um, the only reason Biden's going to Israel is because he has to. And actually, we had Senator Ted Cruz. Ted said the same thing, because he has to. I mean, his policy, he's trying to tilt back, I guess. He's trying to suck up to the Saudis. He's trying to suck up to the Abraham Accords. But he's bungled all of that. I mean, that fist bump was so unseemly for an American president. But here's the real problem. It's not a fist bump. Biden said numerous times that he has put an Iranian nuclear deal on the table and it won't be there forever, but he's waiting for the Iranians to sign off on it. So if the Iranians Iranians signed off on it, the deal would go into place. No advice and consent from the U.S. Senate. No discussion in America. What a bad, horrible deal it is. Iran is our enemy and will remain our enemy It's a far-left totalitarian state run by these coups, whatever they're called, the Revolutionary Guard. They are the biggest sponsor of terrorism in the world with Hamas and Hezbollah and Houthis and, and wreaking havoc in the Middle East and elsewhere, doing business with Russia, doing business with China, enriching uranium for years. They will not allow inspections or verification. Uh, We had uh, a young former national security staffer on the TV show, Richard uh, Goldberg, smart fella, and he walked through the amounts of money that the U.S. would be giving Iran. Because remember, Trump put huge sanctions, effective sanctions. We were choking the Iranian economy. The sanctions would end, and they would get back cash to the tune of about $200 billion in the first year and roughly another $850 billion over the next five years in cash 
and uh, foreign exchange reserves that were frozen around the world because of the Trump sanctions and some kind of crazy calculations of what the economic sanctions cost Iran. We're going to give them a trillion dollars. Can you imagine that? A trillion dollars where they will wreak more havoc and wage more war against Israel and Israel's growing allies, growing number of allies in the Middle East, in the Gulf states, from the Abraham Accords. And the Saudis are doing business with Israel. Saudis did not uh, join the Abraham Accords. I think they would have if Trump had been reelected, but the point is they're sharing intelligence now and planning. Israel itself is undermining Iran at every stage. That's our hope. Our hope is Israel, not an Iranian nuclear deal. Why Biden is doing this is beyond belief, beyond any human understanding. Rearming and refinancing Iran to the teeth. And they will continue to develop nuclear weapons. And they will purchase ballistic missiles and threaten the Mideast and Africa and Europe and eventually the United States. Make no mistake about that. And here's Biden numerous times in this speech, in his trip to the Mideast. Well, we put a deal on the table. It won't be there forever. It shouldn't be there at all. I mean, as far as I can tell, if Iran signs off on it, we're going to start giving them money, suspending the economic sanctions, freeing up their foreign exchange reserves that were frozen? Really? It is unimaginable, unimaginable that Biden would do this. And yet they persist in it. I mean, this was the Obama policy. And Trump interrupted it by pulling out of the deal and freezing their money and slapping tough sanctions. Now, I mean, it'll be easy for Iran to sell oil. They'll produce more oil and they'll sell it. They'll, you know, they're going to sell it to every enemy of the United States, including China. That's what they'll do. Why would any American president want to do this? Is beyond me, beyond belief. We have a former National Security Advisor, John Bolton. He's going to come on later in the show and talk about this. But this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. In, a, in, a, in an incoherent foreign policy to begin with, you know, beginning with us fleeing Afghanistan and all the catastrophe that, that went with that was the beginning of the end of the Biden presidency, I might add. The beginning of the end. Always a dollar short and a day late in the Ukraine. Dissing Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is not going to produce any more oil for us. They're not going to do that. It's not in their interest to do that. And we don't need it anyway. If we had opened the spigots here, we'd be producing 13 million barrels a day on the way to 15 million barrels a day. We're the largest oil-producing country in the world. We were energy independent and energy dominant during the Trump years until Biden declared war on fossil fuels on American fossil fuels. I mean, think about this. Biden is declaring war on American fossil fuels, and now 
trying to declare peace with Iran. It is the stupidest stuff I have ever seen. I mean, I ran the National Economic Council in the Trump years, three years. I sat on the National Security Council. I know a little bit about foreign policy, but frankly, you don't have to be an expert to know how utterly stupid and dangerous this is to the United States and to Israel, our greatest ally in the world. How can this be? Anyway, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a break. Newt Gingrich on the other side of the break. Please stay with us. Much, much more to come. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. And I just want to bring in right away my dear friend, Newt Gingrich. Everybody knows Newt, former Speaker of the House, best-selling author, Fox News contributor. Uh, His latest book, which I think is his most important, is called Defeating Big Government Socialism and Saving America's uh, Future. And... um, he is piloting the American Majority Project, which I think all of us uh, conservative thinkers are helping him one way or another. And, um, Newt, welcome and best regards to Ambassador Callista. Love her. And well, she, yeah. she asked me to say hi to you, and uh, she is, of course, a huge fan of yours. <laughs> Likewise. Newt, look, I want to talk about big government socialism means that nothing works right, but I just, I'm so worked up. Just, we're going to have the whole half hour, you and me, but... This Iranian deal, Newt, is the worst thing I have ever seen. Suspending the sanctions, giving them as much as a trillion dollars over the next five years. They will not allow verification. They are the enemy of Israel. They are the enemy of the Abraham Accords. They are the enemy of the United States. How can this be? How can this be? Well, I think you have to start with the assumption that the people who <clears throat> cut the original deal, John Kerry and others, uh, while Biden was vice president and part of it, uh, are right back at the same stand. And what they're going to try to do is get the same kind of terrible deal, except now it's worse. Hmm. Uh, the Iranians have taken their measure. The Iranians know that they are uh, cowardly and incompetent and will lie to themselves. I'm talking now about the American side. Uh, and... <clears throat> The Iranians are going to ruthlessly exploit every possibility. Uh, When you look at how President Trump had literally boxed them in, had uh, killed uh, General Soleimani, who was their top terrorist, had uh, imposed very tough sanctions, uh, had crowded them on every front, and then you turn around and then build a real alliance with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and others. And then you look at what Biden has been doing. it, it it almost requires assuming that the Biden administration has zero touch with reality. I mean, you, you've, you've heard me say before that these are people who saw the Lion King and thought it was a documentary, and they actually believe lions and zebras huh. sing and dance together. Uh, they're, they're totally delusional, uh, and what they're going to do is, is, is set a situation up where the Israelis are going to attack. Mm. I mean, it, Israel, on, unlike the United States, the Israelis have a very realistic sense of how dangerous the Iranians are. And having lived through uh, or seen a large part of the population killed in the Holocaust and having been the subject of attack after attack from their neighbors, the Israelis don't take risks. And I I would not be at all surprised to see the Israeli government have an election coming up 
And after the election, I would not be at all surprised to see them literally have a preemptive attack on all of the uh, Iranian capabilities simultaneously. That's a key point. That's a key point, and one with which I agree, and that's what I've hearing from my pals in the intel community. Anyway, I just wanted to take a whack at that. Um, first of all, your campaign to defeat big government socialism has taken legs. You know, I, I use the phrase, I've adopted the phrase, I give you credit, but I got we have everybody talking about it. <laughs> Everything has failed. I mean, they've you know, taken a terrific economy and in 18 months run it into the ground. The, all the woke uh, cultural stuff is a disaster. The country's rebelling against it, open borders. So with that said, and I was reading your uh, latest, let's see, July 15th on the Fox and Ear column, Biden's big government socialism means that nothing works. How do you see the story right now? Joe Manchin, I think, gave us a lift. Uh, at least we dodged a bullet here, a short-term bullet. But the bigger picture is, I think you're saying... We have to make sure that we win the intellectual argument against big government socialism, and that will rally a new, a new coalition. Yeah. Is that fair? No, look, yeah, and listen, you and I have been together as, as uh, partners in arms fighting for supply-side economics, for tax cuts, for economic growth, for the intelligent way to fight inflation, which is increasing the supply of goods and services to mop up the money not punishing the American people into dropping out of the economy. And so we've been at this now for a long time. What the left does is not because they're incompetent. Uh, it's not because they're dumb. It's because they believe in a set of things that don't work. And part of my model for this is uh, Prime Minister Thatcher, who when she became the opposition leader in 1975, was very clear. Her goal was to destroy socialism as a legitimate alternative, and she was so effective at winning the argument that no openly left-wing labor leader has become prime minister in 40 years. Mm. And I think we're in a very similar situation, that we have an opportunity, because it's going to be so bad, as, as you know, the, the inflation rate this week was 9.1 percent. The price of gasoline is more than twice what it was under Donald Trump. Uh, the price of food is going through the roof, and by the way, it will get worse. And the effect of that in the third world, where you just saw uh, Sri Lanka disintegrate as a country, uh, you're going to see horrendous problems across the planet. Uh, and you have a philosophy and an approach to life that simply doesn't work. Uh, and I think as a result, we uh, the great challenge to us is not just to win the elections, but to win the argument and set the stage so that in 23 and 24, we begin governing as Reagan did and as we did with the contract with America uh, in a way that truly is, I think, uh, pretty effective. And that begins to move America back to being a competitive country. And if we do it right, um, we will finish up with an amazing victory in 24 and really be in a position to get America ready to compete with China and anybody else who wants to come and play. If we don't, if we don't win the arguments about the superiority of free market capitalism over big government socialism and central planning and redistributionism, which have failed everywhere, then we won't really have done our job. I mean, the elections in this fall, uh, you're saying, and I totally, totally agree with this, 
they're the precursor, but you have to win the intellectual argument, lay the groundwork for 2024. I mean, unless the White House is taken back, we won't be able to reestablish these pro-growth reforms and new, you know, other reforms too, as you well know, you know, stopping the cancel culture that's going on, critical race theory, getting parents back to run in the schools, school choice, uh, closing down the border, uh, restoring law and order, right? The battle for crime. Yeah. These, these are the key intellectual points. The situational story is important and it's not good. We're fighting back, but it's the intellectual story here. Socialism has never worked. That's right. And then, and the fact is the only way socialism stays in power is by becoming more and more and more repressive, locking up more people, uh, punishing you for dissenting, uh, dictating what you're allowed to think or say. Uh, And it's, uh, you know, I I watched the January 6th committee, which I realized was a show trial in the Stalinist tradition. And I got so intrigued with it, I actually went back and I'm now reading a series of books on uh, the Russian Civil War and the Russian Revolution. And it's it's eerie how left-wing ideological movements are parallel and how much they're similar. Uh, And they all start with the idea that the current imperfections can only be changed by destroying the system and rebuilding it in the image of their fantasy. Uh, And that's what you're seeing happen. You know, when you when you when when a seven year old white girl is taught that she is inherently inferior because of her skin color, that's pure racism. Uh, When third graders are invited to have a discussion about their attitude towards transgenderism, that's insanity. Uh, when when you're in a situation where there are some states that want to abolish mathematics because mathematics has uh, a final correct answer, and that means some people will be wrong and they'll feel bad. So in order to avoid them feeling bad, let's not ask them to learn mathematics. I mean, these are the sort of things. By, by contrast, by the way, you'll, you'll like this, right? When Callista and I did Nine Days That Changed the World about Pope John Paul II going back to Poland in 1979, we were filming in Poland, and Solidarity so liked what we were doing, the great union that had stood up to the, to the Soviets, that they gave me a poster that they had made back in uh, 1979-1980. And it's on the wall of my office, just a simple big sheet of paper. And it says, for Poland to remain, this is in Polish, but for Poland to remain Poland, two plus two must always equal four. Ah, and they were, huh. going, they were going right at the Orwell argument that a totalitarian state says to you, if we tell you two plus two is three, it's three. If we tell you two plus two is five, it's five. Well, watch the Biden White House. Hmm. It behaves as though they studied Orwell and thought it was a textbook. <laughs> uh, they, they, they think they can, tell you, you, they, they can tell you anything and you're supposed to believe them, even if they're crazy. <laughs> I love that. Two plus two must equal four. Biden is in denial about all the other factoids that keep cropping up. I love, I love that. He's just in complete denial. Uh, Inflation is just the top of the tip of the iceberg. Newt, let's take a break. I want to come back. I want to talk about the role of climate activism in this socialist ideology. Folks, we're talking to Newt Gingrich, former speaker, and his new book is Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future. Amen to that. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We are here talking with Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House, 
and his latest book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future. This is very important stuff. Newt, I want to apply this to the climate activism, uh, the Green New Deal, the war against fossil fuels, uh, because uh, it's, it's bad enough that it's driven uh, energy prices, oil and gasoline prices sky high, and shut down one of our greatest industries and damaged our national security. But, Newt, I'm, look, I'm trying to look behind it because all the things you're talking about, the, the socialist central planning and regulating, is really aimed at destroying the free market and free market choices, and it's really aimed at destroying capitalism as we know it, this is part and parcel of big government socialism. It's not just about the climate, although that is crucial. I see this as their way of going to uh, enhance and you know move ahead with their socialist agenda. That's what this really is. It's an attack on capitalism. Well, you know, there's a there's a little known article by Robert Heilbronner, who was a great economic historian but a Marxist. Mm-hmm. And in 1991, Heilbronner writes this piece, uh, and I'm going to go back and try to find it and circulate it, because it's it's really a key to understanding what happened. And Heilbronner says, you know, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, we've really lost the argument for centralized government. And we need something to give us moral force to regain the argument for centralized government. Uh, and the environment's the most likely thing to work. And if we could build enough emotional energy around the environment, then that would become the, the, the tool for us to reassert uh, the need for gigantic government to control our lives. Hmm. I mean, Heilbronner, is, he's, very, he's unbelievably open about this. Hmm. Uh, and he's writing to his fellow left-wingers. Uh, and that's, that's the origin of, of 90% of this. This is a semi-religious assault on the entire world we inherited uh, that worked. Uh, and it's caused, I don't, I don't know whether it's envy or just a clever desire for power. I mean, I've, I've always thought, for example, that to understand John Kenneth Gilbraith and his passion for big government, you have to realize as a very young economist, he was in wage and price controls in World War II, and he was making huge decisions about zones where he had no personal risk, no personal knowledge, but he had power, and he loved the power. And so if you think of this as essentially uh, a ruthless power grab that is driven by an emotionally satisfying semi-religious movement, you begin to have a flavor. And then if you take this whole concept that, that, there's, a, that there's a network of the people who are disadvantaged uh, and you look at that uh, and you begin to look at the nature of their coalition, it becomes more and more obvious uh, exactly what we're up against. And, and, it, and it turns out that what we're really dealing with is uh, a, a, kind, a kind of intersectionality, to use their word, an intersectionality coalition that basically says everybody who is weird and strange and doesn't fit normalcy is an ally of everybody else who's weird and strange and doesn't fit normalcy, and therefore we're all going to come together. And the environment's the broadest-based and most emotional of our causes. And then race is probably second. But if you put it up on a wall and you say, what is the the Biden, AOC, Pelosi, Schumer coalition? 
Uh, it's a whole range of people who have no common interest except destroying us. But they are collectively enthusiastic about destroying us. They are using this climate change to run every aspect of American life, every decision. You, you look at, um, they're trying to not only change our entire energy and power system, which is, I mean, really an incredible thing, but also they're using it to run companies. You know, the Securities Exchange Commission, uh, with its, uh, I don't know, two, three hundred page rule, which will be overruled by the Supreme Court decision, but they have attempted to run all of America's companies based on these climate activism restrictions. You look at what this Buttigieg guy is doing uh, in the transportation department. He's trying to use climate activism to completely redo our entire transportation system. I mean, these are gigantic changes in the fabric of the economy, and it is run by government central planners. You know, this is, um, this is something from uh, Hayek's Road to Serfdom or the Constitution of Liberty. Sure. This is exactly what he feared, and they're just using it, as you say, the semi-religious uh, ideology uh, to transform virtually all of our economic life. But, but remember, somebody did an analysis the other day and found that there's virtually no private sector experience in the Biden oh, appointees. Yes. Virtually was, uh, none. Yes, Steve Moore, Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Yes. Yeah, who, who, whose, whose newsletter I read every day, and he, yes. he does an astonishing job. I can't recommend it too highly to our audience. But, but here's what hit me. If you're a Buddha judge, this is the greatest level of power you've ever had. Now, you have no sense of responsibility. You have no sense of accountability. So if you screw up an entire industry or you destroy a town or, or you wipe out 50,000 jobs, what do you care? Uh, you're powerful. They're not powerful. And what we've seen is the emergence of a political class which wants to take us from citizens, which is the great achievement of the founding fathers, that we are endowed by our creator and power comes directly to us. We loan it to the government, mm. and they want to reverse that and make us subjects where Pete Buttigieg, out of utter ignorance, has power because he occupies a position in government. And so he can dictate to you and me in ways that are, by any reasonable standard, crazy. Now, the other thing to notice is, and this is how you can tell it's a religion, no facts matter. Mm. The, the, the fact is virtually everything Al Gore predicted about climate change didn't occur. And this goes back to the alarmism. Alarmism is the emotional driver of the left. Uh, we know something terrible is about to happen if we don't act right this minute. So if you're not for this, you're for this terrible thing that's about to happen. Well, the first great wave of that was Ehrlich's writing on the population bomb and the fact that Britain by 2000 would be starving to death. Every single thing they said about population in the 1970s, every single thing was wrong, factually wrong, provably wrong. None of it mattered. Those guys retained their, their senior professorships. They retained their network of friends. They kept getting you know, Pulitzer Prizes uh, because, after all, their heart was true, even if their head was crazy. Fantastic stuff. You know, um, just as the last thought here, uh, our friend, and I, I love the guy, 
warts and all, but uh, Donald Trump said to New York Magazine he's, he's going to run again for president. Can, uh, and I know you love the guy too, but can Donald Trump, you know, make this case of the failure of big government socialism and the failure of critical race theory and uh, the failure of, um, of this uh, government power grab. Can he make the case, Newt? Well, he can if he wants to. I mean, the, the, the great challenge with President Trump, who you worked with very closely and who I've known for a reasonably long period of time, is I, I, I said one time on, on uh, Maria Bartiromo's show years ago that there's a, there's a big Donald and a little Donald. <laughs> and the big Donald is as historic as Andrew Jackson or Abraham Lincoln. But the little Donald comes running along and has to, you know, he tweets something crazy or get involved <laughs> in some fight he doesn't need. You know. Uh, I love this. The big, I, I haven't I, heard I this it's, before. It's, look, it's the best explanation I've ever had of, of, of trying to cope with because I really think that his term was unbelievably historic. Hmm. And people will only recognize it when they get beyond the hatred. Uh, the, 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 he has two challenges. I mean, being very candid now, and we'll, I'll probably get yelled at for this uh, <laughs> yeah, by, my, by my wife, among other things. Uh, <laughs> but, the, but the truth is, he should have spent the last year and a half thinking through what went wrong because he should have won re-election on a landslide. Yes. And it's not just about whether it was rigged or stolen or anything else. He should have won by such a big margin it wasn't impossible. There were reasons he didn't. He, he has not slowed down to think about that. Furthermore, I, I think there's a very simple formula for the people who want to get America back on track. And it's, it's just three steps. Think about an American majority, mm-hmm. not a Republican majority. And we've proven you can go to AmericanMajorityProject.com. We have tons and tons of data. We've proven that, for example, 87% of the country thinks we have to return to the America that works. Uh, the, the, the 90, by 91 to 6, we agree with Martin Luther King Jr., that it is the content of your character, not the color of your skin. I mean, there's a base out there for a huge majority, which includes Latinos and Asian Americans and African Americans and Native Americans in ways that no Republicans ever thought of, except maybe Reagan. Second, uh, I think you have to be positive. People are in pain. People want to know, what are you going to do to make my life better? Don't, Don't just get me involved in some ideological argument. How am I going to afford gasoline how am i going to get how's my job going to survive and then third we have to destroy intellectually our opponents and prove to people for two generations you don't want to take these people on because they're terrible and their ideas don't work fabulous newt gingrich the best of the best the great newt gingrich and ambassador calista we're going to join together and keep fighting this great fight terrific stuff folks uh i'm larry kudlow Uh, We're going to take a break, and then we're going to talk about the Federal Reserve from former Reagan appointee Robert Heller, who knows a thing or two about monetary policy and what lays in store for the economy. Please stick around. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And we're going to turn our attention to the Federal Reserve and the economy By the by, we just got a report uh, from the GDP tracker of the Atlanta Fed uh, with all the June numbers in tow. They're now expecting a um, minus 1.5% GDP read, so that would make two consecutive quarters, which would stipulate a recession, at least unofficially. 
And uh, our next guest, Robert Heller, who was a former Federal Reserve governor appointed by Ronald Reagan, uh, believes that this is not going to be the worst of it. Uh, it's, we may be heading for a double-dip recession in 2023. And uh, Bob Heller is an old friend. So, uh, Bob Heller, welcome back to the show. And... Um, I'm reading your article from July 12th. The recession may be mild. The second one will be worse. Um, I, 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 nobody wants this, but you, you make a case that the Fed has just got so much more work to do. I guess that's what you're saying, that real interest rates have to be made positive. They're nowhere near that. The balance sheet is still too loose. The money supply is still too rapid, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, uh, walk us through your thinking on this. It's difficult, but I think it's got some realism to it. Good morning, Larry. Great to be here with you again. Uh, yes, at the moment, the economy is really in a very slow mode. Uh, as you just said, minus 1.5% for GDP. The first quarter was clearly negative 16 so we got what most economists really consider a recession, two quarters of negative growth in a row. And uh, at the same time, we still have a lot of inflation in the, in the economy as well as in the pipeline. Uh, producer prices are way up in the double-digit range, 11.3%. If you look, actually, it's interesting. If you look at the uh, all-commodity producer price index, it's a whopping 23%. So the factories that have to pay these prices still have to digest them, and they will be reflected in uh, consumer prices eventually. And they're already growing at 9.1%. So in all likelihood, they'll be continuing to increase, or at least stay very, very high. So the Fed has to fight this. And the Fed still has a stimulative policy with negative real rates <clears throat> on the Fed funds rate. So uh, as the Fed tightens up during the coming months, uh, they have to tighten up very much. And as a result, the economy will slow down uh, even more. So while we may have a temporary recovery in the second half of this year, I would expect towards the end of the year, early next year, the Fed policy will start to bite and we will get a second uh, recession. So we'll have a double-dip recession, as you said. Bob Heller, um, you know, the, on this commodity thing, commodity prices have come down, uh, but, you know, year to year, they're still way, way up. Uh, question, an analytic question, if producer prices are rising faster than consumer prices, which has been the case for many months. Doesn't that squeeze down uh, profits? And isn't that going to take its toll on the economy? I mean, it's very hard for a business, you know, if, if they're paying more uh, in costs than they're getting back in the prices, it seems to me that's going to be a big profit squeeze, also one that might affect the stock market. Uh, well, there's a lot of that. You're absolutely right, first of all. Uh, there will be a profit squeeze. And we've seen it already just a little bit in the very first, uh, second quarter uh, earnings reports that we have seen. 
the banks, some of the banks have lower earnings. Uh, so I think there's more bad news to come in that department. Also, wages are increasing very rapidly. We see strikes in quite a few sectors, everything from Starbucks up to airline pilots who are unhappy. Uh, so there's more pressure on uh, corporate earnings. And as a result, you, as you say, uh, they will uh, be under pressure and they will probably go down a bit more. Uh, and then, you know, that, that will also slow down uh, the economy. Uh, there won't be much money for investment left. So all those factors together, plus the Fed tightening. And if you look at interest rates as they go up, uh, the mortgage market, for instance, is already pretty depressed, not depressed, but, but has come down sharply from its uh, height. And housing uh, sales in our area have at least are slowing down considerably. So you see it happening all over the place. And then the additional Fed tightening will uh, cause the second dip of the recession. Uh, Robert Heller, what do you expect from the Fed? Um, this meeting is, um, it's, I think it's not this week, it's next week, but what do you expect from the Fed here in July and then in September and then, you know, in November and December for that matter? Well, there are two different things, what they should be doing and what they are likely to do. Mm-hmm. What they should be doing would be a very sharp increase, like 150 basis points at the next meeting mm. to really say, hey, we are serious about this business. If Volcker were there, he would be doing big increases mm. uh, and uh, to do what it takes. Uh, I would expect either a 0.75 or 1.0 increase at the next meeting to be repeated in September then again. But uh, see, by that time, we will only be to a neutral Fed funds rate. So they haven't done anything yet to, to squeeze down inflation. What's the basic inflation rate now? Well, uh, if you look at the uh, CPI, 9.1%. Mm-hmm. I'm not one of the people who like to strip out uh, food and energy and other important things. That's what people pay every day. Mm. So why collect that? So 9.1%, that is my inflation reading at the present time. And like I said, I don't think it's going to go down, more likely to go up. Do you think the Fed, if, if, if you get, let's say the third quarter is slightly positive, sort of like a false recovery, you, you think that slows the Fed down or speeds the Fed up? It actually would give them elbow room to... To, to be as tough as you want them to be. That's right. So they can continue on their march. They can right. continue on their, uh, to, to get inflation down. And Powell said, you know, that is what he really wants to do now. <clears throat> Finally, he has gotten religion, and I'm mm. all for it. Yeah, he's growing hair in his chest. He's regaining his manhood. <laughs> I love the 150. I've been saying 100, but the 150 now, you know, you're you're probably right. That's a Volcker-like scenario. I don't think this Fed has it in them, but that's probably what they ought to do. Well, the other thing you have is you have four, uh, <coughs> three brand-new governors there uh, right now, including 
new vice chairman and the other vice chairman has just been reappointed. I don't know whether you count her as new. Uh, uh, as, uh, she's certainly experienced. She has, Brainerd has been there at the Federal Reserve for quite a while. Uh, and then you have uh, the brand new appointments. Uh, and uh, they, I don't think they will be the first couple of meetings. You know, you want to feel your way around. You want to get your feet under the table and see what's happening. It's unlikely that they will be very aggressive. Mm. And, uh, you know, they're new Biden appointments. So uh, they are likely to go with the flow rather than right. uh, ask for strong increases uh, in the Fed funds rate. Well, all right. We'll leave it there, Robert Heller. I think um, you're on to something. I think it's going to be a long struggle. Kevin Hassett, well, you know, I'm was... Wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Well, I know, but... You know, if if we were cutting taxes and deregulating business and energy, it might be easier, but we're not doing that. And um, that's, uh, I think, plays into your scenario. Kevin Hassett told us on the, on the show last night that it's going to take several years. Uh, he said not until something like 2025 will this uh, inflation be washed out. So... I, I suspect I suspect you're on to something. Anyway, Bob Heller, thanks very much uh, uh, for the update. Folks, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to bring in Paul Ray, who uh, was the head uh, regulation and information guy in the Trump administration in OMB. He's going to talk about what this uh, EPA Supreme Court decision means and how effective it's going to be in uh, stopping central planning and what Newt calls big government socialism. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I want to talk some more to my friend Paul Ray, who was on the TV show last night, Kudlow Show on Fox Business News, uh, Fox Business Network, um, about the grand scope of the impact of West Virginia versus EPA, which went against the EPA and could really stop uh, all of this transformational climate change stuff, but also it could stop the what Newt Gingrich calls big government socialism. So Paul Ray is Economic Policy Institute Director at the Heritage Foundation now. He was the OMB um, Information and Regulatory Affairs Administrator, OIRA, which, um, you know, Paul Ray, one thing I just thought of as I was introducing you, d- am I right? Did the Bidens stop cost-benefit analysis that was always part of the OIRA regulatory review? Did they actually stop that cost-benefit analysis? Yeah. Hey, hey Larry. And, and by the way, great to join you. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah. So they, they're still doing cost-benefit analysis, but to be candid with you, it's not very good cost-benefit analysis. It's very low quality. And the reason is they have not even nominated someone to be the head of OIRA, of OIRA, the, the office that I, was, oh, that I was the head of. I didn't know yeah, that. So 
That's that's right. So, you know, really, OIRA's main job uh, is to make sure that the cost benefit analysis is high quality. If you don't have a political uh, Senate confirmed head of the office, it's awfully hard for the office to do that. And and to be candid with you, I think it shows that the administration is not very serious about understanding whether the rules are going to do more harm than good. Wow, I did not know that, Paul. They don't even have an administrator there. That's no, incredible. No, they don't have one, and they haven't even nominated one yet. Huh. Well, you know, I was talking earlier in the show with our friend Newt Gingrich, who uh, coined the phrase big government socialism. And, the, you know, the thought occurred to me that the West Virginia EPA decision, which stops the EPA from these grand economy-wide decisions for which there is no congressional law legislation. But the question is, I mean, you're writing, you wrote in the journal, Wall Street Journal piece, a great piece on stopping the SEC from becoming a climate regulator of business, uh, which is way beyond any statutory authority they've ever had, and they'd have no expertise on the matter and so forth. But, Paul, the, the question is, writ large... Will this Supreme Court decision stop this, you know, march of central planning and and big government socialism? Yeah, so I think it is uh, one of the most exciting opinions in a number of years uh, from the perspective of of stopping that march. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, it seems to me the SEC has two options at this point. Uh, It can call a halt to its rulemaking on its own or the courts will do it for them Mm -hmm. under this West Virginia case. And what about all the other stuff? Like, you know, you've got, just think about this. You've got this uh, Pete Buttigieg at transportation. Uh, I, get it. I don't know whether he's written the rule or the rule is out or it's out for comment. But basically that would, you know, it would stop gasoline-powered automobiles. I mean, he's using, you know, we've always had emissions. We've always had tailgate, uh, tailpipe emissions. But he wants to expand this environmental review, essentially would stop gas-powered cars. Now, I would assume that would qualify under West Virginia versus EPA as something he can do. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I haven't, uh, I haven't looked at that rule. I do think that what West Virginia means is that um, basically when an agency is, is deciding a major question – and I can't think of anything more major than U.S. climate policy. You know, uh, mm-hmm. if, if that's not a major question, I don't know what is. And indeed, uh, U.S. climate policy was exactly the major question at issue in the West Virginia versus EPA case. So the Supreme Court also thinks that climate policy is a major question. Um, I think that, you know, you, you see the administration using every statute that it can think of uh, to to try to change U.S. climate policy because Congress won't give it the climate policy that it wants. And what Ma- what West Virginia versus EPA stands for is the idea that you can't just use any old statute to try to uh, change the course of U.S. policy on a major question. You have to go to the people acting through their elected representatives. Mm. If you think that the U.S. needs an important new climate bill, well, there's a place to go for that. It's called mm. Congress, mm. right? Um, and really the, the core of what democratic self-government means in America is that there's really only one place to go for these fundamental policy questions, 
and that's the people's elected representatives. So if you look at um, the attack and the war against fossil fuels, which is at the heart of the West Virginia issue, um, what I think I understand, what I think this means is the courts and the lower courts will stop the bad stuff. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the spigots will be reopened yet. You see what I'm saying? In other words, Biden's goal is to close the fossil fuel spigots in general, uh, the, you know, drilling, pipelining, refining, and so forth and so on. Um, that stuff might be thrown out, but I don't know that that necessarily gives the oil and gas industry a kind of incentive to go ahead and start making new investments again. You know, they basically stopped making new investments, and we're still we're still a million barrels a day uh, less than we were pre-pandemic when Trump was president. But what I'm asking, Paul, is this will stop the bad stuff, but doesn't necessarily mean it's going to restart the good stuff. Yeah, that's exactly right, Larry. So, um, you know, huge step forward for the court on the major questions doctrine. It really keeps the president... Um, from, from getting up and, and the agencies from, from getting up to, to some mischief. Um, but, it's, but it's not enough to go in the right direction. To do that, we really need uh, a Congress and a White House that, um, that are pursuing what's best for the American people. The court, you know, is just not designed to, to substitute for that. And yeah, you, so you're going to get a bunch of lawsuits to stop these onerous regulations. But um, Right. It's not going to reignite, which is really too bad. That's so Biden right. and we mentioned this last night on the TV show. So Biden's in Saudi Arabia uh, and he's he's so furious at Joe Manchin because Manchin is stopping climate change. We're not going to have this 500 billion dollar or whatever um, tax credits for uh, uh, renewables. Um, and then he says, all right, I'm going to do everything I can to use executive authority and regulations to complete my climate policy. And that's ex and the part that I liked about that is that is precisely what the court is stopping. And there he goes again. Right. I mean, it's just like, he doesn't, does he not understand? This was, I think you mentioned this, this was Obama's, what did he call it, pen and phone uh, yeah, that's approach? Right. There was, there was a, that's right. There was a famous speech in 2013 where Obama said, you know, I've been trying to do this and this and this through legislative reform, and Congress won't give me what I want, but I have a phone and I have a pen, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and he said, I can if if they're not going to give me what I what I want, then I'm just going to do it myself, you know. And if there's if there's one thing that is um, uh, that runs against the the rule of law that we have in America, it's that uh, the idea that the president can just do what he wants when Congress says no. Yeah. Right can't do that. So when you were running OIRA, did you, I mean, did you try to hew, you're a, you're a lawyer, right? I am. Yeah. So it was your approach, you know, to try to hew closely with what the, the actual congressional legislation was when you were evaluating regulations? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if, uh, if there was a a case where we weren't sure uh, whether the statute would allow the regulation, I would look at the statute. We'd get DOJ to look at the, at the statute. White House counsel look at the statute. We'd have lawyers' calls and lawyers' meetings and try to mm. see what the statute allowed us to do. We would absolutely take the law seriously. Mm. And what was the rule of thumb that Trump had uh, 
for every one reg, we had to kill two regs or five regs or seven regs. <laughs> that's, that's right. So Executive Order uh, 13771, issued in the first couple of days of, of, the, of the term, uh, set a two-for-one rule. Uh, and, but, but I got to tell you, the agencies beat that. Um, at, at the end, I think they were at about four or five to one for the mm. whole term. Mm. So the Bidens have completely reversed that. Oh yeah, I I uh, I, I think there's uh, I, I can't I can't think of a deregulatory action they've taken right now. <laughs> I would, right, I wouldn't want to hold my breath. Well, all right, Paul Ray, I'm glad you're active at the Heritage Foundation, and we'll we'll talk some more about all this stuff. Thanks very much, folks. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk to a former ambassador and national security advisor, John Bolton, about this Iranian catastrophe and other things. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow, and we talked earlier at the opening about the insanity, the utter insanity of Biden renegotiating some kind of nuclear deal with Iran, who are practically the worst people on the planet. So I am going to my friend John Bolton, Ambassador John Bolton's former U.S. National Security Advisor, former ambassador to the U.N. He's chairman of the Foundation for American Security and Freedom. Uh, His book was The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir. John, you have to help me here because I'm going nuts over this. And um, learning, I mean, among other things, so Biden's laid this plan down. He said it five times or something in this uh, Middle East trip. And he says, well, you know, we won't wait forever. Apparently, they're going to lift the economic sanctions, provide as much as a trillion dollars because they're going to give back all the assets that were frozen during the Trump sanctions that you had a lot to do with and um, central bank reserves. So they're going to refinance Iran, which will not even allow verification of the weapons they're enriching like crazy. I could go on, John, but you, you're you the expert. I'm just telling you, this deal is making me crazy. Well, you're exactly right. Uh, the 2015 deal, the original deal that, uh, that we withdrew from in the Trump administration was a terrible deal at the time. And the Biden administration has spent over a year now making further concessions to the Iranians. And uh, uh, despite uh, being told on a number of occasions that uh, uh, that they were going to give up the pursuit of it, that they were at the end of the uh, negotiating and whatnot, the, the administration just can't leave it because they view this as a theological objective, getting back into this deal. Uh, but as I said, the original deal was bad. We can go into that at great length. This deal is even worse. And our allies in the region, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Israel, all think it's a bad deal. So, you know, this is the president that said he was going to get right with our allies and whatnot. I'm sure on this Middle East trip, he's heard it direct from the leaders. They think the deal is a bad deal, dangerous for them, dangerous for the United States, dangerous for the risk of nuclear proliferation around the world. Uh, that we, we ought to call a stop to this sooner rather than later. I mean, John, all these things are clearly right that you say. And Biden says five times that we put a deal on the table. And we had one of the uh, national security, one of the younger national security people on the TV show the other night, uh, last night, talking about the money involved. We are going to pay Iran a fortune. So they'll just use that 
uh, for more terrorism, Hamas, Hezbollah, etc., etc. They're buying, a, what are they buying, ballistic missiles to deliver nuclear weapons. They're enriching like crazy. I mean, it could be they could be getting back a trillion dollars worth. I mean, it reminds me of the airplane. Remember with Obama, the, the, they with brought the, cash, the yeah. Look, th- that was bad enough. This this could well be worse. And right. uh, what they did with the money that was unfrozen back in 2015 and the relief from sanctions was put it in their support for terrorism, put it in their nuclear and ballistic missile programs. They'll do exactly the same. Um, and, you know, the uh, administration, while this negotiation has been going on, has relaxed the sanctions. China is now buying oil from Iran. Uh, basically scot-free. Hmm. So so the, the pressure that was put on Iran has already been considerably eased. And uh, that that's the reason that the countries, the Arab Gulf countries and Israel are so concerned. And it's not just about Iran's nuclear program. It's about their support for the Houthi rebels in Yemen. The Iranians give them missiles and drones that the that the rebels used to attack civil airports in the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, oil infrastructure. Iran supports Hamas and Hezbollah. Uh, I mean, it's just it's a, it is the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. And the and the immediate targets are right there in the region. But John Bolton, what do you ever talk to these guys? I mean, what do they think is going to happen here if they went through with this deal? I mean, look, here's 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 what's really at the bottom of it. I think they say, as you point out, rightly, the president says all the time we don't want Iran to have nuclear weapons. Uh, and, And I think, you know, in a perfect world, they probably don't want Iran to have nuclear weapons. But do they really care about it? Are they really going to do something to stop it? And the answer to that's no. Uh, and they think they can manage Iran, just like, by the way, they think they can manage North Korea with nuclear weapons. I'll say again, sure, they don't want them to have nuclear weapons, but they're not going to strain to prevent it from happening. So what they're trying to do, if they can get back into the deal, uh, is it's a way to get past the first term of uh, and probably the last term of Obama's presidency, uh, getting close to the point now where the terms of the original deal are due to expire. So I think the whole thing is theater uh, or theology, and neither one will protect us, Israel, or the Arab states against uh, Iran's nuclear weapons or support for terrorism. One of the things, John Bolton, that, I, that Biden's been saying is that we put the deal on the table. It won't be there forever. But doesn't that sound like, like if Iran accepted the deal tomorrow, we would go through with the deal? Absolutely. Look, the administration has been on its knees for well over a year. They said as far back as October that we're running out of time. That was October. This is July. Uh, I tell you, in Tehran, the Iranians are kicking themselves that they didn't ask for more concessions, because if they had, the administration would have given them to them. The the last two hang-ups by reports and leaks and whatnot is, is that the Iranians want Biden to guarantee that no future American president will withdraw from the deal, which, of course, he can't do. And by the way, while we're on the subject, there's not, as far as I know, not a single potential Republican candidate for the 2024 nomination who wouldn't withdraw from the deal if we went back in. So Mm. that that point's kind of a sticking point. But the other thing, you know, the deal was only supposed to be on nuclear issues, but the Iranian government wants – uh, the uh, Trump administration designation of the Revolutionary Guards Corps as a foreign terrorist organization to be lifted mm. so that they can go right back to doing what they were doing before. Uh, and the, and Biden has tried every single way he can think of 
to do that. If he did in any way, it would be an explosive result in Congress. And Mm. the one thing the administration doesn't want to talk about is there's much more Democratic Party opposition to going back into the deal today than there was to the original deal in 2015. How did they get around the Senate in 2015? Well, first of all, they said it's not a treaty. Mm. Now, I think that's wrong. And look, the Senate has has thrown away its treaty power basically over the past uh, 70, 80 years. It's a a complex subject, but Mm. the Senate has to stand up and act against the the executive branch if it doesn't submit something like this as a treaty. There was a bill proposed by then-Senator Corker that Mm. reversed, in effect, the treaty clause of the Constitution. It was a terrible idea, Mm. and Republicans should never have supported it. But Obama used that as if it constituted congressional approval. So the real answer is this is a treaty. If, if anything is a treaty that deserves uh, mm. Senate advice and consent, this is it. And the other thing, John, is I read that the U.N. guy, I, can't, I don't know his name, maybe you know his name, but he's been saying uh, they, they don't allow inspections. They don't allow verifications. You know, they're building stuff inside mountains and they won't let anybody look at it. Yeah, look, this this uh, director of the International Atomic Energy Agency, yeah. uh, Director Grossi from Argentina, yeah. uh, I think basically doing a very good job. At least he's telling the truth. That's always a step forward. You know, both in Obama and now under Biden, advocates of the deal say we have enhanced verification and transparency into the uh, Iranian nuclear program. That is absolutely false. Absolutely false. Uh, the program, the, the push for nuclear weapons is going on right now, and we, we don't have the intelligence capability to find it. Uh, other countries do, and they keep bombing it. Uh, uh, but, but the IAEA, uh, the U.N. agency, uh, is, is barred from the key sites. Mm. And you reckon that Israel is going to take action on its own? I, I have no doubt that whatever the Biden administration does, uh, Israel's prepared to act, and we know that because they're acting already. They've uh, they've bombed uh, and and sabotaged key locations. Uh, Iranian nuclear scientists have come to an early exit. Uh, all kinds of things going on, and if if they need to, Israel will act unilaterally uh, with great force because they fear quite correctly that a nuclear Iran is capable of a nuclear holocaust against Israel. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. How close do you think? Um, I know it's inexact, but how close is Iran to having a nuclear bomb? Well, the quick answer to that is about uh, 48 hours by a bank transfer to the North Korean Central Bank to have a North Korean nuclear weapon flown to them. Uh, oh. we, we, we don't know enough about Iran's program to calculate so-called breakout time. We don't really know how many centrifuges they have to uh, enrich uranium. Uh, but, but the key thing is that their technology uh, is at the point where they could get it very quickly. And it's simply unacceptable to, to risk uh, the danger that they would get it. The idea you can push it off until they actually have uh, a nuclear weapon that you can see in a laboratory is far too late, far too dangerous. I mean, John Bolton, old friend, this is the most catastrophic story in my mind. This is worse than anything else going on around the globe right now. 
Well, it's a threat uh, because of what Iran might do with it, but also the threat, and I think it's very real, that given its ties to international terrorism, Iran could quite willingly, quite easily transfer a nuclear weapon to a terrorist group. You don't necessarily have to have a ballistic missile to develop it. You can put it on a tramp steamer, sail it into New York Harbor, and light it off. This is very dangerous stuff. Mm, Boy, oh, boy. John, if you can stay with us, I want to talk about the incoherent Russia policy, your Washington Post column. If you can uh, stay right after the break, give us sure, a couple more ahead. minutes. You're terrific. Folks, we're talking to Ambassador John Bolton, who was former U.S. Uh, National Security Advisor. Uh, his book is The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir. It's a very interesting read. Uh, he's chair of the Foundation for American Security and Freedom. Uh, John Bolton will be back with me. I'm Cudlow just after this quick break. Please stick around. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Uh, welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking with Ambassador John Bolton, former U.S. National Security Advisor. Um, his book is The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir. He's chairing the Foundation for American Security and Freedom. John, you wrote in the Post a couple days ago, the Washington Post, Biden's scheme to cap oil prices reflects his incoherent Russia policy. You know, first of all, they can't cap oil prices. Second of all, they're selling all their oil, John. You know, Russia is back to uh, pre-war oil production because their customers in India and China are buying lots of oil. So they're financing their war machine. We haven't done a thing here. You're not going to get China and India to uh, take a... uh, cap on oil prices. I don't even understand what Yellen had in mind. She's a central planner, so she thinks you're going to have price controls. But this thing you're saying, you're writing here that that won't work. And meanwhile, it's distracting from the key issues regarding Ukraine. Can you tell us some more? Well, I mean, the points you've made about its unworkability are absolutely critical. It's an academic theory. No, no system like it has ever been applied in the sanctions context that I'm aware of. Uh, and yet she's devoting enormous times to try and negotiate. What's the reason for it? The reason is that they are obsessed with the price at the pump of gasoline in this country, and they're trying to think of anything they can to get that price down, ignoring, and, you know, she she is Secretary of the Treasury, ignoring the fact that uh, between their their fiscal policy and the Fed's monetary policy, that's what's causing inflation, not the war in Ukraine. But the idea is to do something to keep Russian oil on the international market, hoping that will bring prices down. It is directly contradictory to the basic policy of putting pressure on Russia economically through the sanctions uh, to impair their ability to wage war against Ukraine. They're, they're trying to achieve too many objectives. They, you know, This is sanctions without pain. And what it basically sends a signal to Russia is that we're approaching the limit of our ability uh, to try and squeeze them economically. It gives comfort to Putin and his advisors. If they can just keep it up a little bit longer militarily, they won't achieve all their objectives, but they'll do a lot better than we thought a couple months ago. I mean, I thought initially sanctions, the idea with sanctions, if they were tough enough, which they never were, would be to stop Russian oil sales, which is, you know, he's... What what did McCain say? It's a it's a broken down gas station. I mean, that's really it's not the only thing they got, but it's the biggest thing they've got. 
And well, it's clearly the, their biggest export. And, right. and you know, the, the, you've, you've put your finger on it. The answer here it doesn't matter what the international price of oil is. Drive their exports to zero. Right. That's what has the impact. Uh, and yet Treasury and the administration are not willing to do it. I, I think this is actually symptomatic of a bigger problem with Treasury and, and sanctions as a whole. People really don't uh, use them as effectively as possible. I, I'd like to move sanctions enforcement to the Department of Justice or the Defense Department, for example, because yeah. uh, if you want if you want to put pressure on, you've got to be serious about it. If you just want a virtue signal, you know, oppose the sanctions and don't enforce them. But but say, look, look at the tough steps we've taken against the Russians while they continue to grind Ukraine into the ground. So what's your assessment of the Ukraine situation right now? Well, I think we're in a race, basically, as Russia tries to gain as much territory as they can so that at some point, uh, and you can call it an October surprise, I don't know that it's necessarily October, but at some point within a couple months, Putin can say with something like a straight face, we've achieved our objectives, it's time to call a halt to military operations, so we're declaring a unilateral halt, we're just going to stop where we are and then negotiate with Ukraine. But if they do that and we're not prepared, that's the new border of Russia that they're declaring. The race on the other side is getting our military assistance to the Ukrainians on the front lines, not making speeches about it, but getting it uh, to a position where it can affect the Russians. And, you know, the the, the shipments have been slow, and uh, the, the cost to Ukraine in human terms has been very high. Uh, it's it's not over yet, but it would also be nice if the Biden administration could articulate what its objectives are, which it still hasn't done. Yeah, see, that's the part I know. And there seems to be disagreement inside the administration. I mean, Austin and the Defense Department sounds tougher than than the White House sounds. Every, but then sometimes they'll say, well, we want a Ukrainian victory, but then they pull it back. I mean, I don't really understand that point. What is what what are our objectives right now in Ukraine? Well, I don't think the administration can articulate a set of objectives. I mean, I think the danger here, when you look back at the 2014 Russian invasion of Ukraine, where they annexed the Crimea and seized the first big chunk of eastern Ukraine, and they basically got away with it. The sanctions that were imposed were paltry. It obviously didn't deter the Russians. They've watched the uh, Biden administration withdraw from Afghanistan. They thought they saw their opportunity. Uh, And although their military has performed very poorly, unexpectedly poorly, uh, they're still gaining ground. They're still picking up territory. So from their point of view, if they can get some X amount more and stop and declare victory, they, they need a pause to regroup. Mm. Uh, and, but it, so it will mean the conflict is not really over. It's just to allow the Russians to get organized again. And you can expect more conflict later and not just in Ukraine, but in other parts of the former Soviet Union. Where, John, wh- where do you think those flashpoints might be? Well, I think in particular, Belarus, uh, I think uh, that's right. from 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 the point of view of, of Putin and his close advisors. They think the breakup of the Soviet Union was illegitimate. They think the independent, uh, the new, newly independent states are legitimate. They think Ukraine, Belarus are failed states. They want them back in the uh, in Mother Russia, and and that's what this is about. So there's more there. This is not simply about Ukraine. It's part of a bigger picture. Ukraine's the most important to Moscow, but it's not the only piece. 
We're talking to John Bolton, former National Security Advisor, former U.N. Ambassador. John, I, I guess the last one, and you've been very kind with your time. Um, uh, have we supplied the military equipment and the artillery that uh, President Zelensky wants? I mean, it seems just to me like they're always a dollar short and a day late. And, 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 and you know, stuff is getting over there, there's no question, but Zelensky is always asking for more. I, I'm not a military strategist. I don't know about these things, but what, what's your take? No, I think that's exactly right. It is the day late and the dollar short. Uh, we, we Look, our basic failure in Ukraine was failing to deter the Russians from invading on February 24th. Biden didn't even try very hard. Uh, ironically, right now, we're being deterred by the Russians. Don't give the Ukrainians any weapons that can that can actually attack sites in Russia. You know, the Russians are invading Ukraine, but the Ukrainians can't touch Russia. Mm. Don't, don't give anything that might get Putin upset. Uh, and that tells Putin that he can still uh, continue with his objectives and not really fear the kind of response that we might otherwise get. We've given we've given enormous assistance to Ukraine in the form of intelligence, mm. uh, which has been been absolutely critical. But it's a it's a it's a it's a strategy that says, well, we want to help Ukraine, but we don't want to help them too much. And I mm. think that's part of the incoherence. And are they still intimidated by uh, by Putin? Really? Yeah. Look, I mean, I think uh, they they have made it a mantra that if we do, you know, if we give uh, go back a few months, if we give the Ukrainians the Polish MiGs, which their pilots could could use that. Uh, that Putin might escalate. Look, if Putin wanted a pretext to escalate, mm. the provision of our uh, intelligence has is plenty of pretext for him. He's not going to do it. He doesn't want a war with NATO. We could have done a lot more in terms of a no-fly zone, at least in western Ukraine. We could do more right now to help get the export of wheat out of Ukraine onto the world market and to uh, developing countries that are going to be in very tough uh, shape here in a few months if we don't do that. There's a lot we can do, but we are self-inhibiting because mm. Putin overawes the White House. You were, listen, I was in some of the meetings. You were not intimidated by Putin. <laughs> Just, well, I, look, he, he's as cold-blooded a person as I've ever met. Uh, and he used to say, uh, when we talk about arms control or something, he'd say, well, you have your logic, we have ours, let's see who prevails. Uh, he's not irrational. I don't think he's got a screw loose. But but you but understanding that should tell us that there's a lot more pressure we can apply to intimidate him. Instead, he's the one intimidating us. This is backwards. Yes. Ambassador John Bolton, former U.S. National Security Advisor. John, I appreciate your time. It's great to hear your voice, honestly. Thanks very much. You. All right. Take Thank care. You. All right, folks, I'm Larry Kudlow, and we are going to take a break. And on the other side of the break, we're going to do some work on the stock market and the bond market and the commodities market and the economy. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Stick around. Much more cooking. It's The Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to do some stock market work. Join us during the week, by the way, Fox Business Network. It's the name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. And uh, you can live stream us on the Internet right here. All you do is wabcradio.com or larrykudlowshow.com. Go across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system. That is if the Chinese don't take over the moon and Mars. But the rest of the solar system will still be 
listening to us. We're going to do stock market and the economy. We have Nancy Tangler, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Laffer Tangler Investments, which has a five-star Morningstar rating, and David Bonson, founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group and author of There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. So welcome, kids. I'm looking for some economic truths here. We are, uh, let's see, the stock market was down slightly this past week. Not much, down slightly. The S&P year-to-date is down about 19%. Interestingly, um, short-term rates went up. The Treasury three-month T-bill went up 40 basis points, probably getting ready for some Fed tightening. But uh, market rates continue to fall. The 10 years down to 292, well below the inflation rate. Crude oil was down. Gasoline was down. And so we'll have to, one thing, I got one for you right now, David Bonson. Um, the euro is now one to one to the dollar. <laughs> one to one. What does that mean? Is that important? I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think it does speak to the dollar of liquidity shortage that is taking place around the world and how the Fed basically has total control over the euro right now because the ECB cannot and will not tighten to the degree we are. And because of the euro being this mutual block of countries that have a common monetary policy but separate fiscal policies, they're just stuck. They are at the mercy of Jerome Powell. And people keep talking about so many things that are like the 1970s. Well, the euro is now like, uh, what, it was in 2001, I think, was the last time we had this parody. Yeah, it's really something, one-to-one. And the other thing is, uh, Nancy Tangler, the yen has fallen all the way to 138.5 yen to the dollar, which is really quite remarkable. So we do have king dollar. Uh, I'm not sure what that means. Um, That's probably putting some downward pressure on commodities maybe longer-term interest rates? I don't know. What do you make of it? Yeah, I think you're right, Larry. I mean, I think the Japanese are going to hold out and and do their very best to not raise rates. Don't ask me why. Um, But if you look at the commodity prices, I was looking at them just before I came on, and everything except for coal, by the way, which is up, futures are up 333%. Everything's down for the year. Uh, Copper's down 28, lumber's down 58, nickel, wheat. All down. And I think it's also keeping us uh, it's it's putting some downward pressure on inflation because we're importing goods, obviously, at cheaper prices. But it's going to wreak havoc if it stays this this elevated with the multinationals. I'm just going to point out one more thing that just struck me. Um, Of all the developed markets, the United States has the highest level of inflation, except for Spain, which is at 10.2 percent. Our friends in France who use nuclear power, rely very heavily on nuclear power, are, their inflation rate is only 5.9%. Mm. So for me, everything comes back to energy. Uh, if, if we could, if, if President Biden did indeed do everything he could instead of canceling all the leases and auctions, um, we, we would be in much better shape. Yes, we would. Well, maybe the Supreme Court is going to help us on that. Yeah. I'm looking One hopes. I wanna, I'm looking I don't, I don't. Oh, yeah. In, import prices are only up two tenths in June. Right. So that's the lowest reading in a while, uh, undoubtedly because of the dollar. And the year to year change is 10.7, which is a big number, but it's actually been coming down gradually. Uh, 
in recent months. So that's good. So what is the um, what is the stock market outlook, David Bonson? What do you make of all this? Well, I think that um, the 650-point move up Friday sort of changed, that it was actually headed to be a pretty brutal week, and then it kind of just made back in one day most of those losses. But, look, I have said for some time, Larry, if the 10-year at 349 on June 14th, if that was the high, then you at least can get a base in the stock market to start stabilizing. Now, I think we're in for a couple of years of flat and choppy market. I don't think we're hitting 40,000 anytime soon uh, until you get the supply side boost to the economy, tax reform, you know, all the good things that promote growth. But I cannot tell you how much I agree with what Nancy just said, that in, inflation is about energy. Goods inflation, by the way, in the midst of a 9.1% CPI print, goods inflation was down for the fourth month in a row. This is energy, and this is going to enable us to isolate the problem with Joe Biden and actually prove that supply issues around energy are what are causing the headline inflation. And I think the stock market is going to see a really divergent result with energy doing well and certain things that are pricing power, like consumer staples doing well. But I don't see big tech coming back for quite some time. I thought... um... This is kind of a wild notion, but I thought when Joe Manchin canceled the tax hikes, the market went up 600 points. Absolutely. I think the the market was rejoicing. You know, (laughs) it's the the Joe Manchin market right now. I mean, and, and, and Biden is furious at Manchin. And I'm reading like the New York Times and the Washington Post, Nancy, and the gnashing of the teeth of Joe Manchin is, is just wonderful to watch. Wonderful to watch. It, it's so funny you say that, Larry, because I, I, I watched the market, you know, on Friday, obviously, as David does. That's all we do. And um, I, I noticed the, the move up as soon as the announcement was made. But all the pundits were saying it was retail sales numbers, which, by the way, on an app, you know, on a real basis, we're negative. Right. So I'm, I'm with you. And then I, I wrote a piece about it, and then I watched your show, and I was like, oh, so the, I'm not original in this, in this thinking. <laughs> well, it's just, uh, you know, look, Bonson's right. The supply side help would be terrific. We're not yeah. getting it. But at least we stopped the bad stuff. I mean, there was a very nasty set of tax increases in this Schumer, yeah. you know, whatever, reconciliation thing. Well, and I'm trying to say nobody nobody should be more against the idea of raising taxes even above you know 10 million of income than the three of us on this call. But I have to say the biggest issue, and I agree with Nancy and you so much, and I am mortified that other pundits were not catching on to this yesterday. The biggest thing was this pass through businesses, this 3.8 percent right. tax on family businesses, on small businesses, LLCs. And the, the level at which that tax was kicking in was very low. And so I just think that that going away was a huge boost, and I cannot believe it didn't get more attention. You know what else was in there, incidentally? Um, they were going to cut back on loan loss provisions, which would have been decimating because small businesses are not doing well. They've been flat. Household employment is falling. Uh, th- that was the second piece that didn't get much publicity, but they would have uh, curtailed the amount of loan loss 
provisions that these small business pass-throughs could take. But that's off the board now. And so is the minimum, the 15% minimum tax, Nancy, on corporations, because right. that was on book profits, not IRS profits. Right. It's it, it, it just mind-numbing how, how wrong-headed everything that's coming out of Washington is. I wrote a piece a year ago called Mr. Magoo's Washington, and, and I think that's how you describe it. These people sort of walk blithely along, creating destruction in their wake, and, <laughs> and they don't ever feel the result of it. And if you, if you just look at uh, the implications of everything that was in that bill, it was absolutely every wrong economic decision and policy decision that you, that you could make. And I, I don't understand what it's going to take, but I, I'm sending around an old video um, of Milton Friedman explaining inflation mm. and it's priceless. It's 13 minutes long. And, you know, it basically all comes back to what we've talked about so many times. It's always inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And we talked about Jeremy Siegel a year ago where he produced a report that showed inflation versus um, money supply. And it, the gap breached 150 years of data, like it was mm. the highest in 150 years. And his comment was, we're going to see 20 percent inflation. I, I don't know over what period of time, but we're going to see it. And he was right. And mm. he got I, I talked about it, got a lot of pushback. He 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 was right. And this is what we're seeing. Nancy, will you send that to me so I can look at that? Yes, too? I will. David, I before will. we take a break um, regarding goods inflation, uh, which is coming down, but services inflation seems to be coming up. I'm looking at. Uh, yeah. Three, the last three months, this is from the CPI, services up 9.9 annually, the last 12 months, 6.2. And then services X energy uh, up 8.5 for the three months and 5.5 for the 12 months. So is that the next problem that's going to come? Well, no, it's a lagging indicator. And so much of that, I parsed this out on Thursday in my daily market commentary, the dctoday.com. This owner's equivalent rent is such a big component of services, and it's three or four months behind. And so anybody looking at housing knows that it was just in a bubble level of inflation several months back and has drastically slowed down. The month of May, it may have been the first month in two years that apartment rents were actually down but that isn't in the data yet. So I think services is just playing catch up, but it is still a problem and it's going to stay high. It's just that goods inflation because because of car prices and things like that is a little ahead. So I do expect some disinflation going forward. But um, I think that the issue you referred to has to do with the way they measure rent and housing in the services metric. Nancy, what's uh, we got to take a break, but bef- just give me a minute on your inflation outlook, please. Oh, I, I mean, I think, listen, it's going to be with us for a long time. I, I, I think we see four to five percent for the next couple of years mm. be, be, because the sticky components are so long in in um, changing. You know, take, take, rents are not going to come back down. Wages are not going to come back down. So the, the headline numbers will come down. But it, the embedded inflation is going to stay with us, which is why I think you want to own stocks eventually yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And as an offset, and particularly the dividend growers that are growing their dividends faster than the rate of inflation. But th- this was an epic failure of Fed policy and, and, and fiscal policy, uh, and we're going to pay the price for a long time. All right, let's take a, uh, let's take a quick break. We've got Nancy Tengler. 
of uh, Laffer Tangler Investments, and we've got David Bonson of the Bonson Group. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to come back and do some guesswork on the Fed and then maybe pick some sectors of the, uh, of the stock market to invest in. Maybe. I don't know. Hope springs eternal. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking stocks with Nancy Tangler. CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Laffer Tangler Investments, which is a five-star Morningstar rating. And David Bonson is the founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group, the ever-expanding Bonson Group, and author of There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. I've got some breaking news here on the Fox uh, Business website. Um, SpaceX founder Elon Musk said humans are two to three decades away from the first human landing on Mars. Quote, Mars may be a fixer-upper of a planet, but it has great potential, the billionaire wrote. <laughs> Love the guy. <laughs> <laughs> David, do you think Mars is the fixer-upper of a planet? <laughs> well, I have a really, really hard time properly looking at Earth. And and, and and getting my arms around New York City and California. <laughs> this is great. It's a fixer-upper of a planet. I, I love the guy. I truly love the guy. Um, so, David Bonson, I'll go to you because I don't think you are going to agree with this one. But we had um, Robert Heller, who was a former Federal Reserve governor, Reagan appointee. He told us um, a couple of segments ago that the Fed should raise the Fed funds rate by 150 basis points. Um, when they meet in July. What's your take on that? 150. Well, part of my uh, answer is that it's somewhat nonproductive to talk about the stuff that we just know is not going to happen. <laughs> it's, just not, it's not on the table. It will not happen. Um, however, that's the first I've the heard about that. the 70. Yeah, but you know, you know, the 75 versus 100, by the way, the last time the Fed truly Surprised markets, like really surprised markets, 1994. So it's been a it's been a little while, but I think that the um, that the 75 to 100 debate is kind of inconsequential if they're going to end up stopping at the same place anyways, and they are. And I don't know what that number is, and I don't know when it comes, but I think that there's some number at which they just plain stop, and it will still result in a negative real rate. Um, and so I don't believe that there's this Volcker-like creature coming out of, of uh, Chairman Powell. But the other thing I'd say goes back to Nancy's point earlier about energy. The Fed funds rate is irrelevant to energy prices. This is national energy policy on the supply side. It is production problems. It is ESG. It is a Marxian anti-fossil fuel narrative. It is Biden not standing up to extremists in his own party. That is what we have to focus on. The Fed funds rate needs to be normalized because it's absurd to distort financial markets this much. But it is not the primary cause of our inflation. And it isn't even the primary cause of the higher money supply. Um, so ultimately, I think the Fed funds rate is what markets are looking at short term. But bigger term inflation, it's energy. But Nancy, um, can these markets, bond markets, uh, continue with negative real rates no <laughs> yeah summary no um i mean i i'm with I, I would love to see 100 base points I, I i don't know how i can like david so much and disagree with him on on something but i i think that the more front-end loaded these hikes are the better it would it will be for 
bringing inflation down. I kind of like Jeffrey Goonlock uh, suggesting that they just raise 400 basis points all at once. (laughs) (laughs) I know. See, I'm in your camp on that just because um, I I I think eventually real rates have to turn positive. Um, So why not get it done sooner rather than later? Right. I I, I agree. And I think I've been using a lot of war analogies in my writing. Um, My latest was a modern day uh, bunker battle of Bunker Hill. I mean, the Fed stared inflation, you know, the whites of inflation's eyes. They were they looked right into them. And instead of making a shot, they stayed nose to nose for nine months too long. And so the, the the way that they have dallied in terms of, you know, reducing the balance sheet and the first hike was 25 and taking 75 off the table, but then raising 75. I mean, th- this is a rudderless crew. And I, I think that the more aggressive they get, the sooner, the more relief that will bring to the stock market. And um, I mean, we've got an inverted yield curve. So I, I think we can all kind of agree that that's one of the most reliable indicators of of recession, and what's so interesting to me is we actually got one in August of 2019, mm. and, and of course, no one knew what was going to, you know, drive the, the recession in 2020. But there it was. Mm. So I think we have to pay attention to that, and um, the sooner the Fed gets the work done, the better. Didn't your kids go to the Naval Academy? Yes, 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 yes. That's and the I have that's, my. That's where the war analogy is coming from. <laughs> well, my son just dropped off his 150-pound Great Dane for a year because he's getting deployed. Um, oh. So oh. I, I just say, why not get married? Well, God and then I don't, <laughs> I don't have the dog for a year. God bless but, yeah. you. God bless you. Yeah. David Bonson, what are you buying? What are you investing in? Well, I want to be very selective, and I love coming on air with Nancy because she promotes my book for me, The Dividend Growth. It's mm. exactly what we do. Yep. What we believe in, um, we don't just view it as tactical right now. We're permanent dividend growth investors for a lot of reasons, but I totally agree with her. Um, whether one believes rates are going higher or not, um, people need cash flow. We are in a low rate environment historically, and even if it goes higher, we're not going back to those rates that people used to like on the bond side. And and you don't want fixed rates when you have inflation. You want growing income so we want to be selective in energy, industrials, consumer staples, areas where there are good dividend growers. And by the way, I think the financials have gotten pretty cheap. They have definitely priced in recession. And so there's certain dividend growing financials we like too, Larry. Nancy, what are you looking at? Um, we're dividend investors too uh, and, and have been since the mid-1980s. So what, what we're looking for are some of the, pla- the places that have really gotten hit with great management teams. So Target is a name we've been adding to, 20% dividend gro- uh, growth announcement. EOG Resources has paid $5.80 in special dividends over the last year and doubled their regular dividend and have generated positive returns. So, and the weakness we've been adding to that in energy names. And, and unlike, David, we do like uh, technology. We think that's the sustainable productivity narrative. So some of the names that we uh, own and like have gotten beaten up, and so we've been adding at the edges in mm-hmm. our growth year portfolios to, to the, some of the cloud and cyber names. But in general, I think you want to be positioned in in names that are growing the dividend because that's telling you that management thinks earnings power is sustainable. All right, kids. Terrific stuff. Nancy Tangler. 
and David Bonson. We appreciate it. Folks, please Thank stick you, around. Man. We're going to do some money in politics with Liz Peake and Steve Moore next up on Cudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow, and we're going to do some money in politics. We've got Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist. We've got Steve Moore, FreedomWorks, and Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and his book, Govzilla. Uh, Welcome back, kids. It's a pleasure. Steve Moore, your study on the Biden administration's cabinet and senior people, where nobody has a business background. That study has resonated. You know, I was talking to Newt Gingrich in the first segments of this show and his fight against big government socialism, and he he mentioned your study as one reason why uh, these people continue to pursue all these crazy policies. So um, what does your study say? What are the chief conclusions of this study? So we chatted a little bit about this last week, but I'll just give a quick summary of this, that we looked at the top 65 people in the Biden administration who deal with um, either finance or commerce or business or transportation issues, uh, issues related to the economy. And that starts from the top with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the cabinet secretaries and the people, uh, you know, at the National Economic Council where you were, Larry, and running that under Trump. And what we found was the majority of them, not only have they never work, um, run a business, the majority of them have never even worked for a business, <laughs> which is pretty amazing. It means you probably wouldn't want to hire these people to run a lemonade stand. And yet, you know, we have a $22 trillion economy and they're making, making major, major decisions about how business operates and how to deal with inflation and other issues when they have just almost no experience. And, and we did look, Larry, uh, at the Trump administration and we looked at people like you and so many of the others who uh, we had key positions in the economy. And the, on average, the uh, Trump people had four to five times more business experience. And so, and of course, that starts with the top, right? I mean, Donald Trump had 40 years of business experience and, and uh, Joe Biden has never really had a real job. And so that's the conclusion. I'll just make one other quick point about this that um, I'm not so sure it's an oversight by the Biden administration that they didn't pick people with business experience. Right. I think it's they just don't like business. <laughs> right. They don't like small business. They don't like companies. And so they wanted ideologues and social, uh, you know, people who had worked for government and people who had been community organizers and lawyers and, and uh, those types. And so I, I would submit that's one of the reasons the wheels are coming off the economy. Well, yeah, I mean, Liz, um, it's not that they don't like business. They hate business. Biden, <laughs> Biden has not said one nice thing about business in 18 months. It's not just oil and gas. He's attacked all these. Remember, he was blaming poultry and farmers and shippers, shippers and banks and everybody. Uh, and they're socialists. I mean, socialists don't have a long history. I mean, do you know a lot of Liz, you, you, you worked in business for a long time. Do you know a lot of CEOs who are socialists? <laughs> no. Uh, look, I, I'm not at all surprised by this. I don't think we should be surprised by it, because after all, the Obama White House was taken to task for exactly the same thing, a really profound lack of practical, real-world uh, commercial experience. And boy, does it matter, because whether you're running a huge agency like the transportation uh, sector under Pete Buttigieg, who's never had a real-world job, 
uh, and he can't make the trains run on time, literally, uh, or whether you're trying to create a budget that makes sense or prioritize things. Look, I think think it's very bad for our country that there are so few business people in positions of power and influence right now. I think it's even worse that the Democrats tend to demagogue uh, business and business leaders. And by the way, it has a very big impact on business investment. We saw this under the Obama White House. Right now, small businesses are very profoundly depressed. Uh, you know, optimism about the, the outlook is the worst, I think, ever recorded for small businesses. What does that mean? It means they'll stop hiring, and I think that's already beginning to show up, and they'll stop investing, less productivity, less growth, and by the way, less wage increases down the road uh, for workers. So this is really not good for our country. I mean, Steve, you may be you may be a bit extreme here. I mean, Buttigieg, he's the transportation secretary. He hates roads. He hates cars. Granholm's the energy secretary. She basically right. she hates fossil fuels. Uh, Hallen's the interior secretary. She won't issue any new leases. I mean, you kind of go right down... I mean, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, is, wants price controls on oil. Uh, she, she want, uh, she, climate change is existential risk. I mean, it's pretty wild. I'm surprised. I mean, you, at least they have a general running the Defense Department. At least that's exactly. something. <laughs> well, you know, I was, I, I was reminded about, remember, our, our uh, great uh, – uh, dear friend um, Bill Buckley, uh, bless mm-hmm. his heart, uh, may he rest in peace, he used to talk about, I'll take the 51st people I find in the Brooklyn hands. Uh, <laughs> right. The same <laughs> book right. the people running the city. And, you know, I, I thought about in the context of, like, I'd take the guy who's running the dry cleaner store down the street <laughs> <laughs> right. people in the right. White House. And I'll now just make one other example. You mentioned Budajag and Granholm. There's a, this, uh, we've talked about this woman before, 31-year-old um, uh, uh, Lena Khan. Who's yeah. never never worked for business. She's just been in academia her whole life. She's she's wet behind the ears. She's you know thirty one years old, and she's telling businesses how to operate their companies. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's, sure. it's, it's absolutely ludicrous. Well, I mean, what... you can or can't you can't purchase this. You can't. You're you're too powerful. You know, and she knows nothing. I mean, I've never met the woman, but she, I mean, it really is like the lunatics running the asylum. Well, and now you've got one guy who has worked in business, Gary Gensler. He worked yeah. on Wall Street, so he, so Liz, he, uh, he's running the Security Exchange Commission. Except he's confused, and he thinks it's the Securities and Environmental Commission. So, <laughs> Not so. only that, he's already been very successful in basically shutting down a very big activity uh, that allowed a lot of companies to go public, which was SPACs, the Special right. Purpose uh, Acquisition Companies, of which there were hundreds that came out. And some of them, to be sure, were a little bit flighty and, and not particularly substantial. But the truth is he has stopped that business dead mm-hmm. in its tracks. And I, I kind of wonder, you know, no one wants to sue him. No one wants to take on the SEC or any of these alphabet agencies. It's very scary to do it, particularly if you're a bank or a financial institution, because already the deck is stacked against you. Already Democrat judges and so forth are not going to be in your corner. But, you know, it's pretty high-handed, right, that, that this guy has done this. And, yes, to your, per, to your point, he really wants banks and other financial institutions to start poning up rafts of information about how not only are they handling climate change, but how their customers are and whether they're, they're uh, lending to businesses that are not 
uh, going to move our country towards zero emissions. I was just looking at these pledges that Biden, reminding myself what they are for, for emissions. They are ludicrous. They are truly ludicrous. And, and we're not going to get there. But if we really try, we are really going to stomp. Uh, on our economy. And Steve, I don't know who the guy running the FCC hates telephone companies. That's, 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 <laughs> that's the theme. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's awesome. And then um, the other thing that's so interesting this week is so Joe Manchin comes out against taxes and climate change, finally comes out against it. He is getting, I don't know if you read the New York Times this morning or the Washington Post. The Democrats are slaughtering Manchin, slaughtering Manchin, because yeah. he has this strange idea that if you're in a recession, you shouldn't raise taxes. And if you're in double digit inflation, you shouldn't raise spending. Imagine that. Imagine yeah. that. They're killing him. Yeah, Man, well, here, I'm always, looking at the New York Times. Manchin dangles hope of a future compromise. Democrats revolt. And the Washington, I mean, they're gnashing their teeth about over this poor guy. A compromise with, a compromise with who? <laughs> they haven't talked to the Republicans in two years. This isn't a compromise. Uh, look, I'll, I've said it many times on your show, Larry. I'll say it again. If the Democrats don't want Joe Manchin, we'll take him. We'll take him. Here's the Washington Post. White House on sidelines as Manchin again crushes Biden's policy ambitions. <laughs> I want to give him a Nobel Prize for the economy. Well, he, he really has. I mean, the irony is that he is he is the one guy who's standing between our economy and Armageddon. I mean, can you imagine adding another one, two or three trillion dollars of spending and taxes? And, and that package that they were talking about that he has now hopefully scuttled forever was basically just a big tax increase on businesses, especially yeah. small yeah. businesses. There yeah. were 50 large, I may have mentioned this last week, there were 50 large business associations, you know, of small businesses, um, and they all signed on to this thing. It would destroy our business model. It would, it's the worst time for this. And I've never seen that before. These, these uh, companies, everybody from auto dealers to, uh, you know, restaurant associations to, uh, you know, uh, construction companies saying this would be a catastrophe for our economy. So, I mean, God bless Joe Manchin. And you were right. He does deserve a Nobel Prize. So, Liz, think about that. Uh, they, this is the so-called compromise, okay, for reconciliation. <laughs> so they wanted a 3.8% investment tax on uh, all the small business pass-throughs. Plus, this didn't, didn't get enough attention. That deal included a strict limitation on loan loss provisions for small businesses, okay? That's another one. Then there's the 15% minimum uh, tax on corporations. But, Liz, that was on book profits, yeah. which means you can't deduct, uh, for example, no depreciation. You couldn't deduct expenses, right? You couldn't take any credits. So that was in there. Plus, they were going to tax uh, wealthy people, you know, entrepreneurs, guys, men and women that start businesses. This is what they regarded as a compromise. I mean, yeah. of course Manchin couldn't do it. <clears throat> I mean, it's a denial of, I mean, we're in an inflationary recession and all of these things would have made each side worse, higher inflation yeah. and, and, and a deeper recession. I, I, it's just beyond belief that this is what the Democratic Party stands for. It, but it is. And, and I think, yes, thank heavens for Joe Manchin. I am worried, though, that Joe Manchin has said, well, he wants to see the next month's inflation numbers and then he might change his mind on, yeah, right, on right. saying nothing yeah. you know saying no to tax increases so by the way next month 
uh, inflation, most people think it's going to look a little better because energy is not quite so, uh, is, the gain in energy prices isn't so profound. So is Joe Manchin going to wheedle back to this thing? And are we all going to be sitting here a month from now saying, oh, my gosh, it's going to go through? What, what makes me crazy is where is the accounting for the trillions of dollars already mm-hmm. allocated <laughs> to many of the same ambitions? I was just going through uh, some of the past bills looking for climate change. What we're hearing in this, this, this bill included $570 billion for climate. That, that this was the reduced bill, $570 billion. We've already allocated tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars for climate change. Where's it going? What is it doing? I mean, does anyone have any idea, or is these just magical numbers that are popping out of people's heads? I have no idea. It's I don't crazy think making. Any, I don't think anybody knows. I don't I think know. anybody knows. By the way, I'm not sure what that has to, any of that stuff has to do with climate change. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't understand that. So you're going to buy seventy five thousand dollars Teslas, really? Huh? Plus, you know, Buttigieg, Buttigieg, he he doesn't want anyone to build any new roads. Howland doesn't. Howland and Granholm doesn't want to give any permits for anything. It's not just it's not just uh, fossil fuels. It's also bridges. It's the infra, infrastructure bill. I mean, yeah. they they won't give permits for the infrastructure. So that well, I don't know, they got a one point one trillion dollar infrastructure bill that none of that stuff will get through because of their climate change stuff. So I have no idea where this money's gonna go to. I have no idea. All I know well, man by the way, by the time those inflation numbers come out and stuff, that they'll be in the August recess. That's the best part of the deal. Manchin goes through his Hamlet routine, but he'll be okay. <laughs> He's going to be okay. Well, Larry, why is it? Why is it to follow up on what Liz was saying? Why is it? It's just Joe Manchin. He's the only sane Democrat uh, yeah. in the entire Congress. Cinema. It's really pretty pitiful, isn't it? Well, Cinema. Yeah, no. But she has been tight-lipped lately, and and uh, she probably would be against this too. But I mean, my gosh, I don't understand why more Democrats have they really been so taken over by this radical climate change? agenda and the radical redistribution of income uh isn't it ironic incidentally that you know when you have this high inflation the people who are getting obviously hurt the most are the people at the lowest end of the economic ladder there was a big study that a lot of people are doing having really cut back even on their essentials on their on their groceries and things like that so gee i thought they were going to reduce income inequality their policies have actually made it worse well go back to your study how many of them worked in business I have no idea how the economy maybe works. Maybe we should look at the. Maybe we should look at Congress next. You know. Oh, well, <laughs> the cavalry is coming. The cavalry is coming. That's all I'll say. We've got to take a break. We're talking to Liz Peak, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist. We're talking to Steve Moore, Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and Gubzilla. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back with more money politics. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and uh, his book, Godzilla. So, kids, let's um, chew a little bit. Uh, Donald Trump told New York Magazine he's already made up his mind he's going to run for president. There you have it. What do you think about that, Liz Peek? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I have mixed feelings about it, Larry, because yeah. I think he is such a controversial character. He has an enormous following, there's no doubt. 
but I just think he brings, as they used to say about Hillary Clinton, so much baggage uh, to the 2024 race that I would really prefer someone else to run. Mm. Uh, what worries me is the timing of his announcement. If he announces before the midterms and that keeps from people from voting or turns away some turns off some people from uh, candidates he's endorsed, that would be a nightmare. And it really, really worries me. You know, Steve Moore, I was talking to Newt about this uh, earlier in the in the show and Newt had this great line. He said, well, there's there's big Donald and there's little Donald. He said, there's big Donald who's good on the issues and would fight big government socialism. And then there's little Donald that gets embroiled in all of these small things and Twitter battles and, you know, grievances about 2020. And Newt said, you know, big Donald would be great. Little Donald, not so great. I agree with that 100 percent. You know, I mean, there's no question that if the election in 2024 is about Trump, Trumponomics and Trump policies, I mean, people people love, for the most part, Trump's policies and they look better every day, don't they? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I yes. mean, in contrast to what Joe Biden has done, I think we appreciate what what uh, Trump did. Um, I, first of all, I'm totally with Liz on this and I've, I'm undecided about Trump at this point. I, I mean, I want to hear you know, what he has to say. And I want to, you know, and I think it's pretty likely he is going to run, but I pray that he, he waits until after the midterms because, mm. you know, we're going to have an historic Republican landslide, it looks like. And I, I think Trump, you know, making that announcement would be a distraction at this point. So, uh, Mr. President, if you're listening to this show, I, my advice is whatever your decision is, uh, let us know, you know, maybe in January. Yeah. Well, by the no, way, Larry, could I just follow up on that for one mm -hmm. second? Sure, I was sure, reading sure. earlier about the fundraising for some of the uh, people running for Senate on both sides of the aisle. Republicans are being outraised in terms of money hugely mm -hmm. in some of these very pivotal races. And again, the Senate I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, I find that incredibly worrisome. I don't know. I don't know what that says exactly, whether Republican donors just kind of feel like this is in the bag. They don't have to step up. But we're talking in, for some of these candidates, you know, five, ten times more money being raised by Democrats. And these are not all incumbents. These are people uh, like Fetterman uh, running against Oz. Mm -hmm. You know, you may not like Mehmet Oz. You may not think he's the perfect candidate, but he's better than Fetterman. And boy, oh, boy, do we need to win that seat. Uh, and right now he's being crushed in terms of money. You know, I love the guy. I always will. But if he's going to run, I want him to run as Big Donald. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, right. got to be that's got to be the thing. Um, he's going to give a speech. It'll be interesting. Uh, we have this uh, America First Policy in, uh, Institute meeting in Washington. It's going to be a very big two day conference. Uh, President Trump will give the keynote on July 26th. And um, we're all hoping that he, you know, gives a good, tough policy speech, you know, beating up, you know, attacking Biden's big government socialism and laying out his own agenda, which looks better and better every day, as as you all say. But I think, you know, it's it, it will be big Donald versus little Donald. I mean, look, yep. Kel I've talked to Kellyanne Conway about this. I mean, we all are in agreement when he's good, he's good. But when yeah. he's not good, he's not good. And, and he just um, has not been able to walk away from the 2020 election. And I think 
I just don't know very many people who really want to relitigate that as sort of the centerpiece of a 24 right. election campaign. Yeah, none of us do. None of us do. <clears throat> yeah. Steve Moore, what would you think of Biden's Middle East trip? The Saudis wouldn't give him any oil, but he's got a deal cooking with Iran that would give Iran about a trillion dollars worth of money in order to make a deal that will never be verified. And they'll have a nuclear anyway, driving me crazy. I, I just think it's very dangerous for our country that we have such a weak president. I'll just leave it at that. I mean, he, he certainly um, is not up for the task, and I don't know what the Democrats are going to do. Kamala isn't up for it. Um, how much longer? Did, I, I mean, I'm asking a serious question. How much longer is he going to be president? He just he seems to be fading to me. Mm. Very rapidly. Liz, I couldn't figure out which was worse, fist pumping, fist bumping <laughs> MBS or shaking his hand. I well, couldn't I, figure I, out which is worse. Say, I mean, there's been a lot of con controversial comments about this. Even Democrats <laughs> think it's horrible that he fist bumped with MS uh, with uh, MBS. But can I just say that when our diplomacy effort is boiling down to whether you handshake or fist bump, something yes. is profoundly wrong. Um, my, I'm most offended by the fact that he went he, recent com, recent comments included the fact that Trump he implied that Trump had quote walked away from the Middle East. And I got to tell you, I have never been more angry. It, there, if there's one thing the Trump administration did, it was not walk away from the Middle East. They did uh, get rid of dump the Iran deal, which they should have done. And by the way, if it's such a terrific deal, why didn't it go to Congress? Why has Biden never spoken to the American people about this deal? Mm -hmm. Shouldn't the American people hear something about a quasi treaty that this country is about to enter into? Of course they should. But the most yeah. consequential movement in, in Middle Eastern uh, peace accords and, and diplomacy in decades were mm -hmm. the Abraham Accords, which now Biden wants to take ownership of, having basically <laughs> scorched the earth that, that, that created them. It makes me well, so yeah. angry, Larry, and it's, it's just completely uh, All right, dishonest. Kids. We're going to have to leave it there. Liz Peek and Steve Moore can't thank you enough. By the way, the Iran deal itself is a catastrophic idea. But we'll see how it turns out. Folks, thanks for listening. I'm Larry Kudlow, and uh, we will be back next weekend.